from the city of brotherly love and the great state of Ohio. This is Deadline. I'm Michael Sperger. And I'm J.C. Wilson. J.C., before we get into this episode, you and I need to do a little bit of reckoning. Um, In the first episode of this season, which we dropped on October 1st, you and I did Sean Connery impressions in honor of his role as Lithuanian submarine Captain Marco Ramius in The Hunt for Red October, of course. And on the last day of October... Sir Connery shuffled off his mortal coil. I think we can only conclude that our podcast is cursed. And we've been hearing that from our listeners already. So now we're in November, different month, new month. And I think we might be better off if we limit our discussion to disasters that have already happened. So what can you tell us about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Unfortunately, Michael, there is very little that I cannot tell you about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> All right, let's let's get oriented for our listeners who aren't familiar. Um, uh, uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the basics. Sure, the basics. Uh, setting aside the Gordon Lightfoot song, which is probably where I was introduced to it, the Edmund Fitzgerald was one of the greatest Great Lakes freighters. It was one of the the largest in its time. Uh, I think it was launched in 58, maybe? Yeah, and, 58. And then it uh, sank in uh, 1975 on uh, November 10th. And I have that on my calendar every year because I turn on the Gordon Lightfoot song and drink a lot of Great Lakes Brewing Company Edmund Fitzgerald Porter. There are a number of theories, but one of the things that is fascinating about the, the wreck itself is, A the ship was in you know pretty good condition by all reports it wasn't something that was out there clunking around on the great lakes it was still you know it was older but but was still you know doing very very well b if you look at the the cvs of the crew you couldn't have a better captain than McSorley. I mean, he'd been out there forever. His first mate had been on the ship for I don't even know how long. And the crew among them, I think, you know, when you do the the math on it, you're talking about hundreds of years of sailing experience on this crew. And yet, this storm kicks up out of nowhere, and this boat goes down. Um, some of the creepier bits and pieces are, you know, it's the only other ship that kept in contact with it um, when they were out there was the Arthur Anderson. The ship's captain there, you know, I think the the last thing he heard from Captain McSorley was, "We're we're holding, I'm holding my own." Yeah, and then it the ship went off off of the radar. Uh, I think the Anderson was having a radar failure uh, at that point, but the ship went off radar, and the next thing they knew, it was underwater. Uh, all souls lost. I think that was 29 people. Yes. Yes. 29 people. Yeah. There's so much that's that's weird about the circumstances. As you say, storm came out of nowhere. Uh, they were not far from a bay uh, on the Canadian side where they could have taken refuge. Oh, it would have been it would have been relatively easy. Now, one of the things that if there are a couple of books that are quite good um, of recounting this and a number of them look at the Coast Guard's report because the Coast Guard's report was huge and it was full of detail from interviews with all of the former uh, sailors on the ship, uh, people who had been involved with inspections, you know, the whole deal. The captain clearly did not think he had a problem until he had a real problem. And that's uh, one of the things that makes it 
you know, interesting. And there's a whole bunch of mystique around it too. I mean, the, the whole way I came to it was from, I think, a, a National Geographic magazine that was detailing how a, a local tribe from Minnesota was going to help fund the dive to get the bell off of the ship, put a commemorative bell on the shipwreck, and then return the bell to the the, the maritime cathedral, I think. Or I, mean, I actually end up, ended up in one of the museums. But a lot of people got involved with this wreck and it's still a, there's a lot of bones of contention around it from documentarians of the time. It did actually sink on the Canadian side of the border in the lake. Um, diving on it would require Canadian uh, governmental approval and nobody's granting that. So the ship has been designated a graveyard by a church. Theoretically, there should be no wreck diving on it or any of that, but you know, I have to believe there are people still out there poking their heads where they don't belong. Now, this ship is sitting in 530 feet of water, yes. and, and uh, which is over 150 meters. And people have scuba dived yeah. to it. Yes. What I saw was that these, these guys went, two guys went to the wreck in the 2000s. It took them six minutes of diving to get down there. They surveyed the wreck for six minutes, and then they had to spend three hours coming back up. Yep, because of the bends. Yes, exactly. The people don't quite have their heads wrapped around the size of the Great Lakes. And uh, have you spent any time on Superior? Have you ever been there? Uh, I have not. We've we we have family in Wisconsin and Minnesota, but we really haven't been up in the in the lakes part of the north. I have been out on a sailing boat uh, in Superior, and you can get out to a point where you don't see land anymore. And there have been plenty of sailors that say that in the right conditions, you can't tell the difference between Superior and the ocean. So let's talk a little bit about the song. You mentioned that was probably your first introduction. Uh, I think it would be helpful to stir people's memories if we play a little clip here. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down Of the big lake they call Gitchagumi The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy And you mentioned before that this is uh, Gordon Lightfoot. So who is that? Gordon Lightfoot, uh, one of probably the best-known Canadian folk singers to come out of the 70s. I mean, uh, Sundown, you know, all these really, you know, I, I guess I would put it in the AM Gold category, I think, for this, yeah. the, if anyone knows what the AM Gold category is anymore. Or, or radio. Like yeah, or radio. <laughs> That, it hurts, but it's true. Um, but, you know, you listen to the Edmund Fitzgerald, the, the song, and, you know, that that guitar intro, I think Gordon Lightfoot said in an interview that he was going to write a song around that. He just didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and he was thinking of something like an Irish folk tune. And then he read about the wreck and just started, you know, throwing some stuff together. Now, if you go and listen to the original version, which is what we just quoted from, later – he actually changes the lyrics of the song to tighten things up a little bit because there are some things that are not quite factually accurate in the song, like where he says they're going, I think. Um, there was something about a, a dusty old uh, hall. Like the, the Sailor's Cathedral is anything but dusty. It's a beautiful place. So he kind of cleans that up a little bit. 
Much like your affection for Philadelphia, I have an affection for the Great Lakes and its regions from my birth. And there's the Great Lakes Brewing Company. They have a porter called the Edmund Fitzgerald Porter. If I could only pick one beer to have for the rest of my life, that'd be it. It has nothing to do with the boat. It's just a really good porter. Okay. All right. I mean, it has a little bit to do with the boat. It has a little bit to do with the boat. It's got a really great label. So you and I discovered in the group chat the other day that one of our friends didn't know very much about the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we concluded that as penance for his sins, he would need to make another appearance on the podcast. He's been with us before. So please welcome back local dad and returning guest, Marcus. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, So Marcus, we are going to be doing some check-ins with dad friends over the course of the season. And you know, just want to get a sense for how people are doing as we're making our way through this pandemic. And you know, we decided coming into the season that we wanted to talk about isolation and community. Um, so we'll want to spend some time on that with you, too. So just to just to get us going, tell us about your family's setup, so to speak, for the pandemic. So in the beginning, much like everybody else, it was, what are we going to do? How long do you think this is going to be? We had to finish out the school year for the kids. Uh, my daughter is old enough that she was really kind of in charge of her own education plan because I couldn't help her with her homework anyway. So I would check in with her to make sure that she was on track and doing okay. And if anything was kind of grinding her down, I'd help her out with that. But I had to take on the teaching role with my son. So he and I would be on the back porch and we'd go through that every day. And there were tears, lots of them, most of them mine. And, uh, you know, we worked through that. But then as things progressed for this season, like we knew we were going to be home in the fall. Um, we ordered desks, which of course no one, no one could get because everyone had ordered desks at that point. Um, I tried to have a little bit of a sense of normalcy in the sense of I didn't want my kids up in their bedrooms working on their computers every day. You know, I make them get dressed every day just to kind of, you know, clock the day and that you're up now and you're doing things only on asynchronous days. Well, like, oh, it's a pajama day because they're not really on the camera with their teachers and all that. So currently, uh, at first, Travis was working in the dining room. My wife works from home now. So she's up in the we have a bonus room, which is where I'm recording from, actually. Uh, we kind of convert it into an office slash studio. So she'll work in there during the day. And if I'm doing any kind of VO demos at night or whatever, then I get in here. So she's sequestered away because she's on calls all day long, video and just audio. So I took the kids do not bother her. I'm like, I'm in charge of the house during the day. And so she's locked upstairs. Travis was in the dining room. He now has a desk. So he's in one corner of the living room. Jaden, we have a desk in her room. So she's allowed to be there. And I just kind of float around the house because I've kind of check on everybody anyway. So I have a lap, um, a lap desk and I'll work in the, from the couch or I'll go to the back porch or if it's a nice day like today, go out back for a little bit. And so that's kind of how the school work day goes. You know, uh, I am the, the Commodore of the house here, JC, you can empathize with that, you know, so the lunches and the questions and tech problems, I just kind of manage all those things here. Are they, are the kids physically going to school at all or are they all virtual? It's currently all virtual. Um, hybrid starts November 30th and we asked them what they wanted to do. And originally they wanted to go hybrid. And then as we got more details about the plan, we kind of updated them on what it was going to be like and, you know, their options. And so they decided they wanted to remain virtual. Honestly, I feel kind I mean, our situation is pretty good. You know, I'm not currently working a traditional job, so I've got a lot of flexibility. You know, we really don't know what's going to happen when the kids start going back there. You know, the cases are spiking as it is anyway. And I don't know if we'll even make it to Christmas before they'd have to shut down on their own. So we were kind of like, you know, while they're getting the training wheels off this thing, if the kids want to be here, let them be here. And if in the spring when things have warmed up and they really seem to have figured it all out, if we need to get them in uh, into the hybrid model, then 
then that makes a lot more sense. But no reason to force them to go for two days a week for half days when they can just be safe here. We've been doing pretty well managing uh, the pandemic so far, knock on wood. What do you see as some of the things that you've learned you didn't know at the beginning of 2020? Flexibility and, and adaptability. You know, like the, the kids have been really great. We've been really fortunate uh, with how they've kind of managed things. And so where I would, you know, like the getting dressed thing, where I'd be strict in certain areas where I think I was only doing it to kind of feel like I was having a normal day. I had to learn to kind of back up and be like, you know, why why is this such a big deal? Is this about me or is this about them? So being a little bit more uh, flexible, uh, I've really enjoyed natural conversation flow and just simple moments. So we're fine in silence, but we're also fine having conversations about all manner of things. And when you've got a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old, the topics range far and wide, some terrifying, some enlightening, most confusing. The parenting angle of that is just shutting up and listening. In the early stages of the pandemic, there's a lot of giving direction and order because you're trying to figure out the framework and you know do whatever you're going to do. So you're just kind of like, here, this is what we're going to do. Now it's just being there, being present, and really enjoying that time. Uh, having a great partner, I'm really fortunate. My wife and I, we're, we're all around our spouses and partners a lot these days. More times than not, we're, we, we feel pretty blessed about the time we get to spend together and how we're managing this, this thing together. If one's kind of fr- fried and burned out, the other jumps forward and vice versa. So uh, that communication has been great. I think every day I'm learning a little bit more about there's no set rules and just be there. Marcus, I, I do want to pick at one thing because you, you and I have children that are exactly the same age as I think. Is 13 hitting your house hard? Uh, before the pandemic, I was already like, oh, this is not going to work. You know, uh, 13-year-old <laughs> girls are a, a special kind of kid. And um, so at first, there was, there was definitely some adjustment and a little bit of come to Jesus moments like where I would take a couple deep breaths and go, you know what? Do I want to be a dad or do I want to be right? They're feeling some things out and stretching their wings. And then when everyone's calmed down, we had a little bit of conversation of, hey, listen, we're not your enemy. We'd like to be your friends, but first we're your parents. So A, watch your tone. And B, we're not getting tattoos next week. So don't act like you run something in here. You know what I mean? Like calm down. Through those conversations, it really kind of helped us balance out and just, you know, we give each other space when we need to. But 13 is crazy. I remember it a little bit from the old days. But 13 is a girl. It's a different thing to watch that from the side. And, and, and you know, to be a dad and to be concerned, but also knowing you have to let kids try to navigate this in the most unreasonable circumstances, you know. But they're teaching me how to be a better man and better listener. That's for sure. I did notice the other day as my son and I were talking about something, I thought, you know what? You're kind of missing some of the seventh grade awkward nonsense. Mm-hmm. And pardon me, like a very small part of me kind of thought, you know what? If I could have like sat out seventh grade, I might not have been too sad about it. Sure, sure. Well, let me ask you this because, you know, it, you have a young man there who's growing. Is he more like challenging to you? With my daughter, it's a thing of, Hey, dad, maybe you don't know it all, which was a horrible day for her to learn the truth of that. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, and my son still thinks, oh, well, if dad says you can lift an asteroid with your with your toe, then that's what you do. But, you know, she's kind of like, ah, your jokes are OK. Your music's all right. Your clothes need some work. But uh, so but with a boy, I wonder if it's more like, look, dad. If the zombies got you, we'd be okay because I'm here kind of thing. To be fair, my son is, as you know, a a larger gentleman. Um, Mm -hmm. He's almost taller than his mother now. Yeah, it's getting to be interesting in my house. So, you know, you get a couple (laughs) of – couple big guys wandering around bumping into each other in the hallway. Yeah, we've, we've had some tense moments. I'm, I'm, I won't lie. Mm-hmm. And I have not always been proud of my behavior in those moments. Um, right. 
it's very different to be confronted with another version of yourself. We have had, and it sounds like you've had some, some good moments. We've definitely had those too, like chances to just hang out, um, be dudes and, you know, eat a box of fried chicken together while nobody's looking. I mean, <laughs> yeah. lie, we sneak out for that a lot. <laughs> Which as you should, I have learned a lot about myself and where some of my quirks and triggers come from because of the close proximity to both of the kids and how their lives are different than what I grew up, especially recognizes with my son who's younger, the things that he's doing at nine aren't things that I was doing because I had to grow up a little bit earlier and faster, uh, you know, no fault of his or no fault of mine. So when he'll do something, I'm kind of like, I would get really amped up thinking you have some life skill gaps that you are going to need because I'm not going to be here. And it's like, well, wait, I'm not going anywhere, but my mind, my muscle memory goes to those things. So I've really kind of had to pull myself back and put myself in check and, you know, talk out like, where's this really coming from? So I'm not abusing his childhood, trying to work out my own, my own excrement. (laughs) (laughs) Marcus, to that end, as context, I wonder if you might be comfortable explaining where that's coming from for you, for folks who don't know your own history. Well, you know, my father died at, uh, when I was 10 years old, my folks had already been separated and things like that, but he was in my life quite a bit. And so with that, like the family kind of fractured apart and like, you know, went from uh, the big house to sharing one room in a, in a, in a family, in a relative's home for a bit and then getting back on our feet and living in an apartment, you know, going from a small town to the big city. So it was a really unique journey for me. And I think it sharpened my survival skills. Absolutely. But it also sharpened my, you've got to be more grown now. So there's things that at nine, I was able to do and like, you know, latchkey kids and all that back when that was still a news story or whatever, where he's actually just been able to have a childhood, which is a, an environment that my wife and I've been able to provide for him, which is something that I'm like, fantastic. He gets to have that. But there are other moments like, yeah, man, if this kid wasn't standing right next to me, I think he'd probably get swallowed up by like a wolf or something, you know, <laughs> like there's just these, these natural fears of if I was gone tomorrow in a blink of an eye, what are you going to do? And, um, my daughter's a little bit older and she, you know, she and I are very, for good or for bad, very similar. So I'm not as worried about her. Um, but for him, it was just definitely a concern of like, I'm trying to raise you to be a man and the old school framework of what that looked like, which isn't necessarily something that works today, you know? So that's what I was wrestling with a lot. I think there is something important to keep an eye on as parents about like when your kids hit ages at which big things happened in your life when you were that age. The thing that I learned uh, was um, when our oldest went off to college, I had to pay attention to the fact that when I went off to college, um, my dad had a very demanding job uh, where he was commuting 75 miles each way to work very long hours. And we were at some distance physically and emotionally, even before I left for school. I remember saying to my wife as, as our son was starting, I said, I'm not sure I know how to do this because from the other side, when I was the kid, my interactions with dad had a certain flavor to them and I knew the situation was different, but you only have your own experience. So my son and I were having a little bit of a rough week, just kind of not communicating very well and misunderstanding one another's intentions. So we had this nice conversation uh, one morning before class and we're sitting on the couch and just kind of really vulnerable and like, you know, reassuring him like, man, I was just like you in a lot of ways. I don't want you to think there's anything wrong with you. Like there's nothing like that. So we have this nice sweet moment, you know, hug and talk and he shares some things and I shared some things and I go upstairs and I'm feeling pretty bad, you know, really good about myself, pat myself on the back. You know, I'm getting extra bacon today. I deserve it. And I walk back downstairs. He's on camera 
with basically a ski mask on holding a toy Nerf gun. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> just go off. Like, what are you nuts? You're going to get in trouble for being on, you know, on the Zoom call at school with a gun. And I, just, I'm like, and I just lost all that cool and all those. We're going to talk better and have an easier communication and went right back to cops will be here in five minutes. What are you doing? I mean, <laughs> ski mask and a Nerf gun. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a provocation for, for teacher. That's, that's nine. I mean, you know. Yeah, that, exactly. He was only being nine. I'm thinking of all the implications of now he's going to be in virtually suspension and all stuff like that. And I got to explain to my wife, well, what's going on? Well, you know, boys will be bo-. No, it's just it, it really, again, we, we see all the pieces that could be and he's just being nine, you know. Before we go on, we also need to take note of the fact that Marcus used the uh, phrase extra bacon. He did uh, a moment ago when talking about his own goodness, and I we're we're going to need to tuck that away and keep it. I think that's going to become a T-shirt if we ever do yeah. merch. That's going to be it. Extra bacon. I just want ten percent. Turning to another question for you, Marcus. Um, mm-hmm. How are you staying connected with friends uh, during all of this? Have you happened to meet anybody new in your life since the pandemic started? Um, new people, I would say, has been pretty minimal. As far as keeping in touch with old friends and things and current friends, text is a big one, Facebook. But I did get together with two of my buddies a couple weeks ago, and they live in Jersey. So we just met at, a, at one, of their, one of their houses, and then we just went outside. So we went to a park. They had bocce courts. You know, We brought a cooler, brought some music, and we were able to socially distance and just play some bocce and catch up and you know vent. And it felt so – it was a beautiful day. Uh, and it just felt so normal and nice. Like I didn't even realize how much it filled up my soul until I was like driving home later on going, oh man, I didn't know I needed that. Cause you're just used to, you know, you deal with what's in front of you and you grind and you figure it out. And, but it was the most normal afternoon I had had in months. It was great. So that's the most real activity I ever really had. Um, my mom comes over here and there, you know, she's older and, you know, we were really mindful of not ex- exposing her to things because of her uh, risk factors. But She's easily available and always willing to come over for a glass of wine or two sitting on the far end of the patio while I basically get to serve her for the afternoon. So I get to see her a bit. And uh, there's a few other people like are in our bubble and pot where we've kind of been quarantining together. We know what our activities are and they're okay to come by. But even then, it's always an outdoor thing. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It was a pleasure, guys. Always good to talk to you. And thanks for having me back. We want to hear your stories of life in quarantine. You can give us a call on the dad line. The number is 412-684-DADS. That's plus one, 412-684-3237. Operators are not standing by because they are out battening the hatches for the gales of November come early. Um, but go ahead and give us a message and uh, we'll pick it up. And remember to subscribe to Dadline wherever it is you get your podcasts. Remember, every time someone subscribes, a craft beer gets a shipwreck.